0: you may be seated good morning and welcome everyone my name is pastor scott nice to see so hey good morning nice to see so many of you just a moment uh, i will read scripture and uh, get a chance to talk as we continue our song of solomon series Uh, for some of you like man i'm loving this like let's just keep this going sad news next weekend no church service as Anna said, on Sunday, because we'll be out at Camp Out, so no church service next Sunday, Father's Day. We'll come back the following Sunday, and we'll wrap Song of Solomon chapter 8. My wife will be preaching with us, uh, and uh, it's going to be great. We're going to wrap it up. Today, we talk about Song of Solomon 6 and 7. For some of you, like, man, this has been a lot. kind of ready to wrap it up. Uh, just two weeks left. Before I read scripture, you got this, summer serve opportunities. And oftentimes, uh, in the past, maybe we hand something to you and say, hey, we need... You just sign up for our kids, for our welcome, whatever. Uh, I'm handing you this and actually super encouraged and excited because uh, there's two pages. If you look on the back page, these are ongoing service opportunities. You see community breakfast on Aurora every Tuesday for the last several years. Every Tuesday, a small but dedicated group of people has served breakfast to people in need on Aurora that has made a difference in the lives of people. And then on Sundays, every Sunday, there's a group of people that just serve here and if this is your home, we would love you to serve. And we actually think that if this is your home, a couple times over the summer would be great. Uh, with families, with greeting, with setup, uh, we are a mobile church. And so um, we're also a mobile church that averages about 200 kids every Sunday. So it takes an army. That's happening every week. And then as you flip it over, these are all new things that this church is doing in the next three months. Because we know as we serve, not a guilt trip, it's an opportunity to step into all that God wants to do with us. And so uh you you can read about these on your own but we are really excited the first thing is called big tent jesus party where we've been doing breakfast on aurora but once a month we're going to do a church service for our people on aurora we're going to sing songs we're going to wash feet we're going to serve communion we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to have a full breakfast if you want to participate with that it's the last saturday of every month this summer three times come and join us for that there's a food drive coming because people are in need in our community bring some food next couple weeks backyard barbecues this will sign up in July and I already said we need 25 to 35 to say hey I can throw a party in my backyard and we're going to sign people up starting uh, in early July for mid and late July barbecues by neighborhood so people would feel like they know the people in their community foster parent support ministry there's a growing ministry out of this church to support foster parenting and there's sign up sheets at the serve table today for people that want to be more involved with foster ministry and then this church, Bethany North, in October, I'll be leading a trip to Honduras looking for a small group of five to seven people that would like to travel with me. We go to our village in Pietro de Hareb in Santa Barbara, Honduras, as we show up in the lives of these people. We're going to be in partnership with them. Heather and I went last year. We're going back now to say, hey, we're in relationship. We love you. We're praying for you. And we're looking for a small group that would want to travel to, like, learn more and to come back and kind of be the key stakeholders in that future partnership. So Kind of new opportunities over the next 100 days and ongoing stuff, Um, but pretty exciting, right? Like we don't want to be just hearers of the word; we need to be doers and participating with our life. So there's no guilt trip. But if any of those look great and you're like, "Man, I'd like to do that now," you can just sign your name and your email and circle on these things and drop it on one of the drop boxes. Uh, Let me pray and then we'll uh, read scripture and begin. Lord, thank you for your church, for your people, for the chance to. Uh, gather together on a Sunday, and now as we open up the scriptures and we open up chapter six and chapter seven, a song of Solomon, Lord, we pray that you'd open our lives up as well, that we would be more than hearers of the word, that we'd be doers as well. Give us your wisdom this morning, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. Your scripture today comes from the book of Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verses 10 through 12. We'll be looking at chapter six and chapter seven this week, and again, coming back in two weeks to finish chapter eight. Verse 10 of chapter 7, Song of Solomon. I belong to my beloved, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside, let us spend the night in the villages, let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Amen? All right, today's message is called Godly Love, Reclaiming Beauty and Passion godly love reclaiming beauty and passion when i was in preschool in the Federal Way neighborhood we had a problem on the playground we had a problem with an anthill now if any of you know what the anthills would like to deal with it's a problem and we were a bunch of concerned four year olds and uh, we decided to take action into our own hands i was a leader in those days and so i gathered my buddies and i said we're going to take this thing out And clearly the only way to deal with an anthill is to bring a couple gallons of gasoline from our parents' home and matches and literally blow it up. So I delegated, because good leadership is delegating, right? So I said, you know, Billy, you bring the gas, and I forget your name, you bring something else, and I'll bring the matches. Now, the other good thing with leadership is always set realistic goals for yourself. I knew I could get the matches out of the house. The other guy with the gallon of gas, we hadn't worked it out, but we were going to meet tomorrow morning at the preschool. He's going to bring the gallon of gas. She's going to bring something. I've got the matches. We're going to take this thing out. Well, um, it didn't happen. We get there. This kid had told his parents. The parents told the teacher. The teacher called my dad. And I did accomplish my task. I had a set of matches that I'd snuck from my house at school, caught red-handed. Now, back in those days, when you get in trouble, it involved oftentimes a silent car ride with your father and uh, a stern spanking. Uh, That maybe these days we don't feel as comfortable. But I learned something very valuable then. Uh, Don't blow up anthills when you're four years old. And uh, it it was the beginning of a family story that we've laughed about for years with my parents. But it's a reminder as we segue to the scripture. That powerful things need proper timing and context. But the inherent power in those things is still good. Let me say it again, powerful things need proper timing and context, but the inherent power in those powerful things is still good. It wasn't the the gasoline, it wasn't the matches, those things weren't bad or to be avoided in the entirety of my life. It was just like, hey, you're four, you have no business playing with this stuff. And it was a tough one for me, but I learned that powerful things need proper timing and context, but the inherent power is still good. And as we look at Song of Solomon 6 and 7, today we're talking about the good things of creation beauty and passion, and yes, even sex. But if we don't talk about it, we run the risk of creating fear and silence and shame where distortion grows. What do I mean? The church has largely stayed silent over several millennia on issues of of beauty and passion and, yes, even sex. Matthew Henry wrote six volumes of Old and New Testaments. But he said this about the Song of Solomon. He said, when we apply ourselves to the study of this book, Song of Solomon, we must not only, with Moses and Joshua, put off our shoe from off our foot, we are on holy ground, but we must also forget that we have bodies that we could somehow read scripture and forget that we have a body. He said, no, the only value in St. Solomon is all metaphorical. It's all about us and Christ, and it has nothing to do with earthly spirituality. Forget the body. It's impossible. But sadly, this has been the consistent message of the church for millennia. Forget the body. or Wrap your body in so much shame, it doesn't know how to operate. Why? Why? Much of it goes back to kind of the early church's neoplatonic dualism. In the early church fathers, kind of influenced by the thinking of Plato, that this duality between the earthly and the spiritual. And the spiritual is of value and the earthly is to be guarded. And so over and over again in the early church, this neoplatonic dualism kind of made us worry about the body, avoid the inherent power in sex and passion and beauty and cover it up or ignore it. And the church has struggled at times to see how goodness exists in beauty and passion. Now, historically, how do I, what do I use to back that up? Well, let me quote here. Origen of Alexandria in the year 185 AD. Origen, one of the church fathers of orthodoxy, says this, I advise everyone who is not yet rid of the vexations of the flesh and blood, that's all of us, and has not ceased to fell the passions of this bodily nature, to refrain from reading this book and the things that will be said about it. Just ignore it completely augustine about the year 400 a.d says this sex is only to be engaged in for the begetting of children so procreation okay but passion and beauty no way and so we've inadvertently passed down an unbiblical view of body and of passion we've we've inadvertently passed down an unbiblical view of body and passion Most recently, in the last three decades of the purity movement, there's this continued dialogue of of kind of, you know, bury the body, don't think about the inherent power, let's just hope that people can find their way mysteriously towards Christian marriage and then everything will be easier. Books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye taught not only abstinence but avoidance. And instead of saying things like God created beauty and passion, let's talk about it, we've disengaged the questions. And we've disengaged a healthy view of the Bible to beauty and passion. and We've let culture have its day with us. We've let culture tell us what we look like. We've let culture tell us if we're beautiful or not or where sexuality begins or ends. And it is the Bible as God's people that should be informing us. And so we have to speak up and discuss and say, okay, if God made us and he did and we're good and we are... That there's inherent power and beauty. And yeah, that sex and, and, and passion belong in the right context and the right timing, but the inherent power is not bad. Now recently, Dr. Tina Sellers of Seattle Pacific University released a book, I mean like 10 days ago recently, called Sex, God, and the Conservative Church. And though there's pieces of the book I don't necessarily agree with, there's a much of it that I love. And that she expresses the shadow side of the purity movement is that it replaced conversation and dialogue around God-given sexuality and it replaced it with fear and silence and shame. And anything we're replacing with fear and silence and shame is not God's best life for us. And so Dr. Sellers writes this, she says, virginity is not necessarily the issue nor is purity, it is fear and shame and silence. Fear and shame are the elements children experience when they are told their feelings for intimacy and connection, including their sexual curiosities and desires, are bad and wrong, a sin, not of God, disappointing to those they love, and place their future in jeopardy. Silence is the element children experience when they desire to understand about their changing bodies, their world, sexuality, gender, relationships, and no one they trust gives them accurate information each year as they grow. No one safe fields their questions. No one provides the knowledge they need to protect themselves, appreciate themselves, or differentiates the truth about themselves from the marketing spin of their consumer culture that routinely sells bodies and people. I office on Aurora. We live in a culture that routinely sells people's bodies. And the church, guided by Scripture, should be speaking up and speaking out. Sellers continues this combination of fear and shame and silence wrapped in a religious context of this is of God is, is what produces religious sexual shame that can manifest later as symptoms of childhood sexual abuse in adults. We have a generation of young adults now trying to heal from levels of shame and depression and anxiety and sexual dysfunction unlike we've seen in recent history including Christian marriages. That we have been handed down in this neoplatonic dualistic nature of saying our body is bad and sexuality is wrong and we just we don't talk about things enough and then we let culture teach and guide and the downstream results are of that pain and disconnection and it hasn't been an epidemic than we see in yields of pornography and divorce and adultery and loneliness and people in marriages that are are without intimacy. This is the downstream results of this fear and silence and shame agenda. And so let us today engage with the Song of Songs. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 has to teach us about beauty and about passion, and about the way in which God seeks and protects us, and how we're called to be restored fully, to help others be restored. And so our big idea this morning is this. By understanding a proper biblical view of beauty and passion, we can seek to live a more godly love that will yield truthful conversations and healthy relationships with others. Biblical view of beauty and passion. What's the yield? A a more godly love our, 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 our desire isn't to somehow perfect love on this side of eternity, but we want to be more full of God's love, the, the love that is perfect, that we can have truthful conversations and healthy relationships with others. Let's begin. The first point you're outline. godly love sees beauty. There's, such a, there's so much beauty in this whole book, and especially in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we have this affirmation of beauty, now it's hopeful too, if you were, weren't here last week, chapter 5 is kind of the realistic portrait of a love relationship. There's disconnection, there's an argument, there's actually violence against the women at the hands of others. It, it's a kind of a heart-wrenching but truthful chapter. And the reality is chapter 6 comes. That there's new growth, there's new hope, there, there's good things happening, they're reconnected, they're reconnected in chapter 6. The lovers have worked through their conflict and their disconnection, they reunite. And this, this chapter shows that beauty comes from a godly love. Sixteen times the word beauty is used in the Song of Songs and four times in just these two chapters. And so what we have in chapter 6 is very much like what we had in chapter 4. It's this catalog of physical attributes that he, the lover, is saying of her, the beloved. Now if you contrast to chapter 4, many of them are almost a mirror image because some of us need to be told things a couple of times before they set in. Amen. So he's telling her again about her beauty and about these things. And he's he's naming that what is beautiful about her is the stuff oftentimes behind the veil. He sees her as she really is. And it's also indicative here. You're going to see he'll speak about her veil in verse 7. He sees her in the way that the rest of people don't see her. Because the power of beauty and passion belong in, in a covenant godly relationship. And so timing and context is everything. And beauty and passion, we don't have to say, no, they don't exist or or they're bad. No, we just say they need proper timing and context. So we have conversations with people we love. How are things going in your pursuit to have proper timing and proper context for these God-given powerful things of beauty and passion? The things aren't bad. They just need the proper form. And so behind the veil, the lover sees her as she really is. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 6. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens, to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. Now you can read this literally if you want. There's a beautiful picture of God's creation and human relationship, that humanity, we mirror in healthy love, something about the created order. These words are also dripping with sensuality and innuendo and metaphor. There's much to be said there if you do a a Hebrew study. What is the garden? What are the lilies? You you can go there if you want. You don't need to. You get it. There is a beauty here. And verse 3 is perhaps the, the key theme for this entire book. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. When Heather and I speak in two weeks, we will be talking about this mutuality of healthy love relationships. That healthy love is my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That healthy human love is self-emptying and serving. This is the model of healthy relationship. And so this fruitfulness in verse 2 and 3, it's, it's beautiful, It's beautiful. Look at verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5. You are as beautiful as Terzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Clearly not a great way to flatter your lover is to compare any element of her or him to a flock of goats. But I got to think 3,000 years ago, this was quite flattering. You think my hair is like goats? That's wonderful. I'm in a season life hoping I still have hair in a couple of years. So, flock of goats, I'll take it. But there's this this beauty and this affirmation. And look at verse 4. You're as beautiful as Terzah, you're as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Now I don't know what version of the Bible you're looking at, but some translations translate these Hebrew words into an army. You're as beautiful as an army. Now, we, we connotate army with force and violence and fear, and so it's like, well, that's kind of random, but what you need to see in verse 4 and 5 is that there's a real strength in real beauty. He is, he is saying to her that in your beauty I find strength, and, and the strength is born in place of confidence, and so when you, when you feel beloved, when you feel cared for, when you feel safe, you actually have a confidence that comes from the love of another. We get this in our love of Jesus, and Jesus loved us, that we might feel confident. But how do we mirror this with our human relationships, with the kids that we're raising, in our marriages, in, if we're single, with, with roommates or family of origin? How do we have confident relationships that are formed in, in realizing that we need one another? And there's this, this beautiful kind of mutuality and this kind of confidence in saying there's a strength to real beauty and the attachment that we know that when we need the other person, they're going to show up for us. So some of us are like in the downstream waters, like, oh, I wish my relationships were like more like X, Y, and Z. And oftentimes we encourage couples, go upstream because the stuff you want down there will come from a healthy source where there's good emotional attachment. That's where the confidence lies. I know when you need me, I'm going to show up. I know that when I need you, you're going to show up. And I blew it yesterday, and I'm going to blow it next week because I'm human, but we're going to find a way to get back, and we're going to protect this attachment. Parents with kids, the most powerful way to build attachment is two words. I'm sorry. Because they know that you're not perfect. And when you say, I'm sorry... You allow them to see what healthy reconciliation looks like. Married couples, two best words to build attachment. You ready for them? I'm sorry. I wasn't there when you needed me for, you know, this part of relationship, for more discussion, for being sensitive with things with your cousin, with what's going on at work, but I want to find my way back to you. This confidence born in attachment, real strength, real beauty. So much that he says, turn your eyes for me. It's this beautiful picture. Verse 7, verse 8, your temples behind your veil are like halves of a pomegranate. He sees her behind the veil. Sixty queens, verse 8, there may be. And eighty concubines and virgins beyond number, verse 9. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, they praised her. And look what happens here in this healthy, godly love of seeing her beauty, of seeing her strength, of seeing the interdependence, of seeing the fruitfulness, is, is she gets stronger. He sees behind the veil and says, I know that you're unique. I know that you're awesome. And, and I want to build up that beauty in one, in one another. I want to build that up in you. I see your beauty. I see how the world doesn't see. And, and It's good. And I want to encourage you. I said last week that there's no such thing as constructive criticism. It's a John Gottman quote. It's just being critical. Now, Learn something here from the Song of Songs. If you want a beautiful love story, speak words of affirmation. And, and look behind the veil. Take time to ask questions. Take time to be together. And build this love story where your lover would feel blessed to be with you. And others start to see the confidence and strength from their beauty. Now, Augustine says this, as we take this into the spiritual, Jesus is the beauty of all things beautiful. Jesus is the, is the beauty of all things beautiful. We have this picture as Christ followers that Jesus is the perfect one, the most beautiful one. And as we seek to love him and see him as beauty, we, we discover our own beauty and we can, we can share that with others. And the brothers Karamazov, Dimitri says to Alyosha, beauty is the battlefield where God and Satan contend with each other for the hearts of men. And so, when we see beauty, we see God's creation. When we see beauty in one another, we see behind the veil. It's good. You are beautiful, not because of your dress size or because of your selfie collection or because of Instagram or anything else. Single, married, doesn't matter. You are beautiful because God has made it so I and mean, that's our core theology, the Imago Dei, the image of God. In, in the very image of God, we were created. In Psalms, it says that we were fearfully and wonderfully made. And the ministry of Jesus Christ was seeing and redeeming beauty in people that others saw as deformed or disqualified or deficient. The ministry of Jesus Christ was always about seeing the beauty in people and not compromising She's saying, I see you as you really are, and it's good, and it's beautiful. Look at this verse from, from uh, Romans 1. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome about beauty, about how we know God when we see beautiful. Look, look at this. What can be known about God is plain. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. What can be known about God is plain for God's invisible attributes, namely his power and divine nature, have been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world. This verse might seem very simplistic. It has been blowing my mind all week. It is mind-blowing. What Paul is saying is that God's nature is seen when we see the beauty here on earth. When we see beauty on earth, we see God's invisible attributes, his glory, his goodness, his power. And so when we see and apprehend beauty, we can we can name it that these are things God given. And, and it's true in a Pacific Northwest sunrise or, or or whales, you know, in the sound, or a mountain stream. It's good and it's beautiful, but the most the most beautiful thing in all humanity, because Jesus Christ didn't become a whale or a sunset, Jesus became a man, a human. And so humanity is the true pinnacle of God's creation. And he was beautiful. Zechariah 9.17. How great is his beauty. If we want to see the beauty in others, it starts with seeing the beauty in Christ. And knowing from the scriptures that he sees the beauty in us. Because he made us. And he loves us. And then we get to kind of have better conversations with each other. Helping people understand they were made on purpose and they are blessed and beautiful it's beautiful here what's happening in verses four through nine he's just saying in a very public way i see you you're good and you're beautiful and she starts to respond with confidence and with joy and other people seeing the blessing and it's good and it begins in this conversation friends the church needs to discuss beauty on a regular basis in the arts, in humanity, in the scriptures. The church needs to discuss sexuality on a regular basis. The church needs to discuss dating on a regular basis. The church needs to discuss intimacy and marriage because unhealthy things lurk in the dark. And when we tell humanity that just certain parts of how you're made and the stuff that you feel and the stuff that you're looking at your phone about, when we just say that stuff doesn't exist because I'm too uncomfortable to have the conversation, we're saying that we're just leaving it alone, and unhealthy stuff grows in the dark. No. Someone came up to me after the first Song of Solomon a sermon that I did here a couple weeks ago. They were a visitor, and they said, well, that was interesting. I said, well, thank you. Uh, it wasn't actually meant to be a compliment, I realized, after I uh, said thank you for her uh, not compliment, And she said, I'm pretty sure my church back home would never talk about these things. And I said, okay. Well, I'll live with that then. Because I want to be having more of the conversations of where beauty of sexuality is formed. In the scriptures, given from God, apprehended by one another. The power is good. Of course, the context and the timing need to be appropriate. But we need more conversations, not less. Every fall, we send young people out to college campuses where sexuality is not normally discussed except for some late night kind of joking conversations. And we just assume the best that a lack of conversation will yield good results even on Christian campuses, especially Christian campuses. Not enough conversations until all of a sudden somebody's pregnant and they're shunned from the experience. Or or somebody experiences violence at the hands of the other which happens all the time. Or, Or any kind of disconnection of the beauty that God has in sexuality and the way we're made. We need to be having more conversations not less. That leads us to our second point, that godly love empowers true passion. So this I'm looking at verse 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 6, and really a lot of chapter 7. In many ways, chapter 7 just mirrors what we see here in chapter 6. But godly love empowers true passion. First, godly love sees beauty, and next, godly love empowers true passion, because we're trying to recover beauty and passion as being of God and and good and powerful. So let me talk first about the godly love empowers. Verse 11 here of chapter 6, she says, I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or if the pomegranates were in bloom. Now I'll pause there. I don't know what version of the Bible you're reading. Mine is an NIV and it says here, he is the speaker. But in all of our research this week, all the teaching team, all the exegetical work, it's actually her that's speaking. Because verse 13, this is going to make more sense. These people go, hey, woman, don't leave, blah, blah, blah. It's her that's speaking. But the church looked at verse 11 and 12 and said, it must be a man. Because it's, it's, it's seeing growth. It's seeing beauty. He, he's walking down to the valley and seeing new growth. It's actually the woman. She, she walks down into the valley and she sees new growth. Right, let me just stop there and look at verse 11. These words, new growth. Two words, very powerful. Last week we talked about the reality of, of our ideal in relationships and all of us, married or not, live in the real. And in this gap is where discipleship is formed. And, and the, the confidence that comes out of chapter 6 is that you know, she's seen herself as beauty and there's new growth in the valley. And if you're in a place this morning, single, married, young, old, it doesn't matter. If you're in a place where you just need new growth in the valley, in your spiritual life, in your relationships... And something going on with you, I want, to, I want to give you the confidence that comes from God's scriptures, that when you show up and keep praying and opening God's word and saying, I want to grow, there will always be new growth. There's new growth in the valley. And godly love emp- empowers this. Look at verse 12, the beginning of it says, Before I realized it, my desire set me among a royal chariot to my people. I love this phrase here before I realize it because relational growth and spiritual growth often looks more like this. It's it's rarely lightning bolts and kind of I was here and now I'm here especially with marriages that are in kind of places of being distraught singles are in place a lot of loneliness it doesn't change doesn't come overnight before i realized it she is empowered and she is growing and she has this trajectory of she's coming into a position of authority and let me remind you friend that god's love always empowers us into places of new growth moving us to experience this this kind of growth and trajectory before we even realize it we could look at just about anyone in the bible towards an example that but let me talk to you about peter Let me talk to you about Peter a little bit, because I love Peter. He's a fisherman. I'm a fisherman. Peter's a bonehead. At times, I can be a bonehead. John 21, Jesus has come back, okay? He's come back. John 20, there's the empty tomb. Jesus appears to his disciples. He kind of speaks these words of encouragement about peace, and he sends them on a mission. It doesn't really say what happens to Peter. Now, keep in mind, Peter had turned his back on Christ three times. Peter was supposed to be his best friend and denied him. Peter would be definitely in a place of silence or fear or shame in these Jesus narratives. And I'm not exactly sure, but I think that Peter is bearing the scars of this shame as we get to chapter 21. Jesus appears to Thomas. They they know he's real. They don't really know what to do. And they they go home. And in verse 3 of chapter 21 of, of the book of John, Peter says this, I'm going to fish, Peter says. Because I don't know what else to do than go back to who I was before. I was a fisherman before. I'm just going to go to work. And some of us in the room, Norwegian heritage, like when stuff's going on emotionally, spiritually, relationally, what do we want? to Do we want to just put our head down and go to work? And Peter's like, I'm just, I'm just going to go fishing. I don't know what else to do. And then his buddies say, we'll go with you. So John 21, verse 3 and 4, they went with him. They got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. He's now changed scenes. And the disciples didn't realize, and Jesus called to them, "Friends, haven't you any fish?" "No," they said, and nothing's worse when you're fishing than somebody like asking you how you're doing, or like kind of telling you, how, you know, it's like, "I don't want to talk right now. We're having a bad fishing day already." So Jesus' is like, "Hey, have you any fish?" No?" And then Jesus said, "Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some." Now the other thing, when fishing's not going well don't give me advice like if you're fishing without any luck you don't want advice and so jesus is literally on the shore telling him you know you've been doing it the same way for a while you're you're in the same boat you were in before you're in the same job you're in the same pursuit and it's fruitless and so when are you going to change says jesus throw your net on the other side and you'll find some And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He jumped into the water and all the disciple followed him. And, And they landed, they saw fire burning and there was fish on it and some bread. And then Jesus looks for the first time in this narrative at Peter. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. And feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? And he says it again. Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you do. You know it. Then be fully restored in how you love other people. And when we're in place of needing God to empower us, we need more passion in our life. We need to wake up and be encouraged and challenged and changed that God is for us and this narrative with Peter where he's kind of cloaked in shame until Jesus just kind of calls him out and says, be engaged in the loving of other people. When Jesus restores us, we're restored in order to restore other people. And so may Christ restore you this morning. If you need a restoration from past sin, past shame, hurt, present, I don't know where you're at, but be encouraged. This book is about restoration. And the hope is that you would be fully restored to Christ and you would know that passion. Man, passion. Philippians 2, we just read it on the screen during that song, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue confess, but we often, we play church as if like we know this stuff. We know it. It doesn't mean a lot to some at times. And may the, may the God of hope restore you and open you up and make your heart beat again. Because he loves you. And he wants you to be restored. No matter how you've hurt. No matter where you've been. He sees you. And he wants that heart to pump. A guy after church, first service, he's like, it's just, there's no passion right now. And it's leaking into my marriage and with my kids and my job. I just need passion. So I said, friend, I'll pray with you and I will pray for you. Godly love empowers passion and then it empowers passion here in the song of songs both to god and to one another scholars are divided when the consummation of all this pursuit happens it's clearly here either all throughout or at some point it really is like parsing hairs there's a literal pursuit and consummation of their healthy love story they have passion They, they experience uh Powerful love in the right timing, in the right context, and they consummate that in healthy sexuality. And, and you see here in verse 12, before I realized it, my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. I've already told you exegetically that historically, scholars looked at this and said it must be the man talking because there's authority here. It's not. It's the woman. And, and chariots in that culture 3,000 years ago were a euphemism for sexual fertility and, 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 and passion. Her desire sets her among the royal chariots of her people. The passion is good. And it's giving her strength. It's giving her beauty. It's giving her authority among other people. Don't bury the gift. there's a grave, grave contrast between lust and passion. How do we differentiate? How do I know? Well, no, the powerful things need right context and timing. So if the context or the timing isn't available for you right now, then you will wait And know this goodness in another season. That the passion that God has given here in Song of Songs is between husband and wife. Between two beloved that have kind of covenanted to each other and stated it publicly. It's it's good. It's beautiful. Many people see verse 12 as the most difficult verse in the entire book. But the passion encourages and empowers them. Where lust, lust destroys and tears down. Lust covets and says, I'm going to look at this image. or I'm going to want this thing from my partner. Or I'm going to, it's lustful if it's just serving you only. You now, God-given passion was given from the beginning that two become one and both are serving one another. In the book of Proverbs 520, Proverbs, probably Solomon, says this, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and brace the bosom of an adulteress? It's just lust. And it's just going to steal from you the joy that you know exists here. No. Don't do it. Don't, don't turn towards lust. But in the right context and time, engage in passion. What does the scripture say about passion? One theologian, Paul House, says this. Satisfaction with, one long, with one's long-term love will negate succumbing to that short-term current to temptation. So passion has a long-term aspect to it. and can be engaged and grow. You hear married couples say this. You know, our sexual intimacy was better in our 50s than our 30s, or our 60s than our 40s. That's why for younger Marys, I can just encourage you, have people older than you that are walking the road, that you can be honest and vulnerable with. Another scholar says here about this text in Song of Song 6, to rejoice in the wife of one's youth, to be satisfied by her breast and captivated by her love, is to walk in the path of the wisdom that is grounded, grounded in the fear of Yahweh. Friends, we've said it before. If the grass is greener, it's time to water your own grass. God has given you your own story. So live into it. You're single, live into it. There's intimacy with God and with friends, and you're waiting for the right context and timing. You're married. You don't need a different wife or a different phase or a different husband. God has given you this time and and season for purpose. So water your grass. And this is what chapter 7 is about. These words of affirmation he just continues to speak. Your navel, your, wa- your waist, your breast, your neck, your eyes. Okay, The scriptures have something to teach us. Words of affirmation matter a great deal in the building up of human love. And godly love. That's why we pray. So often we pray and it's like going to an ATM machine. God if you can get me this parking spot. If you can get me this job. I mean we're all guilty of it. Our, our prayers naming things of beauty that God has already begun... To, to give us eyes for. And, and, and a beauty of who God is. That's what healthy intimacy looks like. Real passion lived out by real people. You know, I don't need to be too illustrative about this. But let me just tell you briefly. Because biology and our story is so connected. And matters such a great deal. When Heather and I got married, are you like, man, I'm glad I'm not married to the pastor. Like, this would be so hard to have to sit and like hear talk about your own relationship. But we went on our honeymoon to Ischia. So to illustrate, I'll show you a picture of this island called Ischia. It's a real place. It's an island off the coast of Italy. It's where our honeymoon began. And we had waited for sexual intimacy until we were married. And it was beautiful and awkward and wonderful and... Tired because we were jet-lagged. And we stayed on this Italian island. And then a couple of nights we slept in a car. Because this guy thought that would be a good idea. And it wasn't. It was real life. And real intimacy. Okay? So lest anyone... No no one's perfect in the room. But Jesus Christ has given us a passionate ability to, to be loved by him. And to love others well. And passion in the married relationship... Sexual relationship, I know it's so difficult to talk about and it goes missing at times within married relationships. It's good. Seek the upstream connection of being emotionally connected and pray together that God would continue to help you understand about healthy passion. And finally, here, the third point of our outline is that godly love seeks and protects. Look at verse 13. Come back, come back, O Shulamite. These friends, or the harem, or some people in the village are trying to control the woman. She's the Shulamite. Come back, come back, that we may gaze on you. They're, trying, they're speaking to the woman. This underscores verse 11 and 12. We translate, it's the woman speaking. And so they're saying, come back. We want to just look at you. We don't really want to be in relationship with you. We just, we just want to kind of lust after you. It's, it's weird. It's bizarre. And it's here. They're trying to control her. The Hebrew word for come back here means to return in fear or shame. Because remember, it's fear, silence, and shame that kind of squirrels away beauty and passion and tells us that maybe we weren't built on purpose by God saying, no, beauty and passion are good. They just need proper timing and context. And so they're saying here, come back, we want to control you. We want to look at you. We want to define you by things you've done in the past or by how we see you. Come back. But godly love seeks, and godly love protects. And this lover here, look at the end of chapter 6. He says to these guys, he says, why would you gaze on her as on the dance of the Mahanim? She's not a thing. Why do you want to do that to her? He speaks up, and he seeks and protects and restores and we said last week that the church if it's doing a job need to have more conversation saying you can't treat them this way you can't you can't steal their purity you can't make them feel valuable by by how tall or how big or how whatever we're not gonna we're not gonna do that and we're gonna say beauty and passion are real and, and god-given but we are going to seek each other and be protective of one another We're not going to allow voices saying turn back in shame to be the the driving force of downstream future relationships. We're going to go upstream. And this lover here models the words of Christ. This isn't for watching. No, I will protect you and I will guide you. We are fully restored by the love of Jesus Christ. Fully restored so that we would live into that restoration in order to help others know on the journey you can be restored too couple months into our love relationship going backwards now when heather and i were a couple months in our relationship progressed quickly emotionally and spiritually and we knew that something was special was going on but i got this call this one day i said i need to i need to talk to you and and she'd written this stuff down on a letter because there was past hurts and there was baggage because there's always baggage and there's stuff And she said, you know, I just I want you to know the full story of my life. And I I said to her, I said, I want you to know the full story of my life. And so it's two broken people just kind of telling about the hurts and kind of the comeback moments where people try to control us in fear and shame and the ways that we've blown it and the ways that other people have blown it to us. And, And then we walked over two people saying, Let's write a new love story. And we took the letters and we lit them on fire and we threw them in the fireplace. He said, going forward, we will have a new ethic guided by the blood of Jesus who calls us new things, fully restored, fully forgiven, fully able to be intimate with one another. And then the rest happens. A life of trying to actually live a godly love, and it's difficult. And we'll talk more about godly marriage in two weeks. Friends, what's the point? You've been restored. Receive it. Live into it. And may the beauty and the passion that God created, may that encourage you, single, married, young, old, may our love stories be growing in this awareness that it's Christ, the giver of the beauty and passion in the first place. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the encouragement that comes from your scriptures. Thank you for taking this book that for many of us we had not engaged in in any depth and making it new. Lord, may it encourage us May it encourage us that you want to do a work in our lives. May it encourage us that you want us to have healthy relationships with one another. May it encourage us to forgive. May it encourage us to confess. May it encourage us to change. May it encourage us to be vulnerable. Or may the words of this book change us, your people. And all God's people said, Amen. Will you stand with us as we continue in song? I'd like to also remind you there's prayer team people that are available down front if you want to pray over something that's going on in your life. As we close out these last two songs, may the words uh, of Jesus into your life restored, beautiful, good. May you hear them for you. May you sing them to him. May this be courage and fuel for how you do relationships with others.